0: You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel.
1: Tonight's reading comes from Luke chapter four, verses one through 13. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is the word of the Lord
0: pray our father in heaven we thank you for your word you are a good god to reveal yourself to us you are a great god you are a righteous and holy god you are a just and merciful god and we want to see you we want your word to be our words we want your word to be in our heart and to animate our souls and our lives so we pray now that we would sit well under it in jesus name we pray amen you may be seated Uh, Tonight is a lower elementary week So if you have already registered And you've got a sticker on your front or your back You can head on out with Miss Karen What a great time you guys are going to have Hey there everyone, if I haven't met you uh, My name is Nathan and I would love to meet you after this service There will be several of us up here at the front And I would love it if you came and said hello And uh, we just got to know each other just a bit Uh, I know many of you are better and more organized uh, in just remembering things than I am. If I don't respond to an email right away, I like have to label it and move it so that I will remember to respond to it later or else it will be forgotten for all time. Uh, I absolutely have to set calendar or appointment uh, reminders or else I will stand you up. Uh, One of the greatest advancements in human history happened last year when Apple uh, let you start making text messages unread again by bringing the blue dot back to existence. It was a great advancement. Uh, Now I can remember to respond to text messages. I'll often uh, think like, wait, did I respond to that? Or did Kyle say this, or did he say that? Or what was it that Marcy asked me to get on the way home or something like that? Again, while your memories are better than mine, we are naturally forgetful people with fleeting memories, even fleeting understandings of what we experienced, what happened, what was said, Well, last week, we saw something very important said in Luke 3. We saw as the pinnacle and the climax of John the Baptist's ministry, John the Baptist actually baptized Jesus. And from heaven, God the Father announced and proclaimed about Jesus, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And so one question then will be for the rest of this book, this gospel of Luke, is will Jesus remember what he has heard from heaven? Will he remember who he is? Will he be who he is? Like we've said before about Israel in the Old Testament, Israel, they experienced some pretty amazing and miraculous things as well. They heard God's voice from heaven, only to forget sometimes, like on the very next day, literally three days after they walked through the Red Sea, like the most amazing thing that any of us could ever dream about seeing or experiencing, Uh, they're grumbling again. They are doubting God three days later. So we know that miraculous moments aren't all that humans need to remember well. We forget all the time that God is good or even that God is real. And so if Jesus is declared the Son of God from heaven in the middle section of Luke chapter 3, before going immediately into the narrative, Luke is going to take a big time out. The time out for the second half of that chapter to show us, not only from heaven, but through history, through this genealogy, that Jesus is the Son of God. So we're going to see this genealogy, and then immediately after all of that, being the Son of God, all of that thrown up into the air, into the temptation of the wilderness. Will Jesus believe and live into his identity? Will he maintain his identity as the Son of God? So we're going to see this under two sections tonight— The Son of God declared, and then the Son of God questioned. So the Son of God declared, now just to settle your fears, uh, we're going back, by the way. You just heard Jody start in chapter 4. We're going to go back to this genealogy, but to settle your fears, we're not going to go name by name or line by line for this thing, if you have your Bibles open in front of you. While there are almost certainly uh, theological importance in every name and in every line that Luke gives— the first thing we want to think about is why does Luke include this genealogy where he does in the first place? It does seem like a major timeout, a major uh, interruption in the flow of the narrative, doesn't it? And so why does he put it here? It seems to make sense, as perhaps Mark or Matthew do, to move Jesus' baptism straight into the wilderness. After all, Matthew begins his gospel account. Matthew 1.1 opens with the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And I think we can understand Matthew putting the genealogy there. Like if we were going to include a genealogy at all, that seems like a pretty good place uh, to put it. Who is Jesus? Who does he come from? Where does he come from? Uh, Now that that's settled, we can move on to the good parts or something, we might think. And let me say something else before moving into why Luke puts it here about comparing Luke and Matthew's genealogies. We need to first say right off the bat that Matthew and Luke's genealogies actually do not perfectly line up, like pretty quickly. Luke says that Joseph's father, as in Jesus, Joseph, and then Joseph's father is Heli, while Matthew says that Joseph's father is named Jacob. So see, look, many skeptics might say. Luke and Matthew can't even agree on who Jesus' grandfather is. So if that's true, what other mistakes are there in these genealogies? What other mistakes are there littered throughout these, gospels account, these gospel accounts? What mistakes are there littered through the entire Bible? The whole thing is untrustworthy. Throw the whole thing out. But there are some actual pretty easy answers to some of these discrepancies. Namely... The categories of adoption and leveret marriage. If you were with us in November, when we worked through Ruth, you'll remember leveret marriage, which was a social system put in place to care for vulnerable widows. So that if a widow's husband dies before she has any children, then her husband's brother, her now dead husband's brother, would then marry her in order that she might have future generational security. And so we could say that Obed son of Ruth is the son of Boaz, right? Like, biologically, that is true. Boaz and Ruth have a son named Obed. But legally, we could just as truthfully say that Obed is son of Malan, Ruth's first husband. And so Obed becomes Malan's heir. And the same could be said for biological fathers and adoptive fathers. And so if you want to really theologically nerd out, email or text me and I'll send you an incredible post on why Luke and Matthew are perhaps doing some different things with different names perhaps especially with Jeconiah, the second to last king of Judah, they're not mistaken on their history. They're just emphasizing different things for different reasons. But the reason that Luke puts the genealogy here and not at Luke 1, not right off the bat like Matthew does, uh, can be seen in the biggest difference in Matthew and Luke's genealogies. Matthew starts with Abraham He starts with Abraham and then, back in time, comes through the generations now ending at Jesus, through Judah, through Boaz, through David, through Hezekiah, through Joseph and Josiah. For reasons we won't get into tonight, Matthew is almost certainly setting up Jesus as the son of David, Jesus as the royal heir, the king of Israel. We've already seen that that's a major theme for Luke also, Jesus as David's royal heir. But Luke doesn't start way back in time and come forward to the present. He starts with Jesus and then works his way back. Do you see that? If you have Luke 3 open in front of you. Going through fewer kings than Matthew does and then eventually getting to David and Abraham. But then, unlike Matthew, going further past Abraham, he gets to Noah and to Enoch and then to, in verse 38, Seth, the son of Adam. And then Luke calls Adam the son of God. This is the only place in the Bible where Adam is called the son or a son of God. And this is why Luke puts this right here. Just as Adam is born of God by a miraculous birth that he might live in perfect communion with God, in knowledge, in love, in trust, in perfect worship of God, as God's sub-ruling king, Adam now reigning and ruling over creation in its intended state, now Luke, having told us about where Jesus comes from, having now been baptized in the Jordan River, now Luke is beginning his work of portraying Jesus as the second Adam, born of God by a miraculous birth, that he might live in perfect communion with God, in knowledge, in love, in trust, in perfect worship of God, as God's sub ruling king, reigning and ruling over creation in its intended state. There's a sense in which Luke could have made a similar family tree for every human being who ever lived, right? He could have just grabbed any human alive at the time, just as we could, and go through the generations and ultimately find our ways back to Adam. If all humans come from Adam, then there is a sense in which this genealogy of Jesus is not special, is not unique. But by flipping it upside down and starting in the present, Luke is putting Jesus actually as the fountainhead. All of time flows backward to Jesus and then flows forward through Jesus. All of history, all of humanity finds their person and their being in Jesus. They find all of humanity find their yes and amen in Jesus. Luke is saying that all of history is now swallowed up in this man. This is a big deal. This is an important person. Pay attention. So now that Luke has just hammered home that Jesus is the Son of God, both declared. By heaven, And then declared through all of history, we're going to see that declaration, Jesus being the Son of God, now thrown into the air and questioned continually and over time, maybe even thrown into jeopardy. So we're going to see Jesus move into the wilderness, and now we'll see the Son of God questioned. If Jesus has declared the Son of God now, that declaration is going to be questioned. Verse 1 of chapter 4, And Jesus full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. Now, there's a whole lot going on in verse 1. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us that it is the Spirit who led Jesus into the wilderness, now having Receive the Spirit, remember, descending on him like a dove, full of the Spirit, or as we thought about last week, like robed in the Spirit. It is the Spirit that leads him into the wilderness. But importantly, though, it is the devil, or the slanderer, or as Mark calls him, Satan, the accuser. It is that figure, not the Spirit, which is doing the tempting. While the Spirit leads Jesus here, it is not the Spirit who is tempting. Now, why, though, would the Spirit do this? Why would the Spirit lead him into a place where he might be tempted? The first thing we could say is that God often tests his people without tempting them. I recently heard a teacher explaining that he teaches his class to have their novels open, their notebooks open for the beginning of the literature class. So when the teacher walks in, he expects that the class should be seated in their seats with their materials open and ready to go. And so one day this teacher was saying that the teacher before him who was teaching in the classroom just before his period was running a little late. And so he stood outside and instead of just walking right in while the other teacher was walking out, he stood outside and just watched through the window to see whether or not the class would do exactly as he's trained them to do for the whole semester. Sit in their seats, get their novels out, get their notebooks out will they do without him there giving them orders, will they do what he has taught them to do? And to his great delight, because he had trained them so well, and because he had shown shown himself over time to be a trustworthy teacher, worth respecting, even loving, the students did exactly as he had asked them to do. And so he jumped through the door, and he said, you guys did it! You passed the test! You guys are awesome! I'm so proud of you! Now, importantly, the teacher, by standing outside, did not tempt them. He only gave them an opportunity to cement their obedience as fully theirs, to like, bring it into their heart and soul of, will we do what our teacher has asked us to do? Yes. And so here is Jesus in that situation, being led out into the wilderness by the Spirit in an opportunity of testing but not of temptation. It is the devil who walks into that place of testing to tempt him. And so Jesus here eating nothing for 40 days. Then Luke tells us he was hungry. He was hungry, And after all that, he was hungry. Yes, Luke, I think we could have guessed. But Luke is showing that Jesus is a human being with all of the frailties and all of the needs of we humans, of a human body. This is not some spiritual or heavenly being pretending to be human. He is actually fully God and fully man. And this is the moment, the moment of testing that the devil, the slanderer, comes to Jesus to tempt him. He comes to him in the moment, perhaps of maybe up until this point, of Jesus's greatest need, his weakest, the weakest period of his life, of human frailty. And so the question will be, will he show his obedience? Will he prove his obedience in this time of testing as the Son of God. But secondly, a thing that we might consider, and why the Spirit is leading him out here, is that Jesus is about to replay the entire history of Israel. Israel, who is similar to Jesus' baptism, went through the waters of the Red Sea. And you might be thinking, oh, Nathan, that sounds like a stretch. They went through the Red Sea waters. Uh, Jesus went through the waters of the Jordan River. That seems like a stretch. But Paul makes that exact connection in 1 Corinthians 10, comparing the people going through the Red Sea to their baptism. And they are in the wilderness, not for 40 days, but for 40 years of testing. Finally, before entering the land. So when we read that Jesus is now walking out into the wilderness for 40 days to be tested, our imagination should start firing. Oh, I know this story. Will Jesus actually fulfill the story of God's redemption of his people? And will Jesus succeed where Israel had failed and had failed and had failed and had failed and had failed, failed, grumbling, distrusting God, ultimately worshiping themselves? So here we are. This is where the Spirit has led Jesus to fulfill and redeem and replay the history of God's people. So let's get into it. Here he is, and in verse 3, the devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now, on its face, there's nothing wrong when you want to eat when you are hungry. There's nothing wrong when eating while hungry. There's nothing even wrong, inherently, with eating from a miraculous provision. In just five chapters, Jesus himself is going to miraculously feed 5,000 people. In Luke 9, in a way that is not too dissimilar from what we are reading here in Luke 4. So what is the temptation here? The biggest word in verse 3 is the first word out of the devil's mouth. If. If you are the Son of God, then you should do this. Rather than trusting in what God has already declared from heaven to be true about you, about your settled identity, you know what I think you should do? You should take matters into your own hands. Because actually, dude, you're hungry. There seems to be some doubt about whether or not you are the son. About whether God is a good father. And so this first temptation is a subtle but serious attack on God's goodness. Jesus, God is not providing. So go ahead instead and just for a moment separate your will from the will of the father. Don't trust him to provide. It's clear he is withholding. So don't receive from him, but now start to take. And this is exactly the same temptation that the devil came to first with Adam, isn't it? God is withholding some good from you, Adam. God is stingy. So instead of receiving his life, instead of receiving his wisdom from that tree, go ahead and take. Grab hold of. Take from this tree the wisdom that i am offering you from this tree this is exactly the same temptation that he has come to with adam and now if adam is already in our imaginations from this genealogy this entire scene should now remind us of genesis 3 of the serpent coming to the son of god and asking him did god really say did he really say and yet While this is very similar to Genesis 3, this is almost a mirror image of Genesis 3, isn't it? The first Adam found himself in a place of fullness, of paradise, where God had met his every single need. And yet Adam, the son of God, forgets who he is. He disobeys. And yet here, the second Adam finds himself not in a place of fullness, not in a place of paradise, but he finds himself in a place of barren emptiness, where he is weak where he is hungry, and yet he remembers who he is and he obeys God. He lives as an obedient son because he trusts God as a good father, not to take from in his own timeline, according to his own desires, but to receive from God in trust and in gratitude. So again, the issue is not some miracle bread. Satan is not tempting Jesus to be strong and to make something, to to prove himself, to be some awesome superhero or something. He is not tempting him to be strong. He is tempting him to become independent, to separate himself from the will of God. But Jesus responds with the words of Deuteronomy. And in verse 4, in response to Satan saying, did God really say, Jesus said, yes, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone. It is written. Did God really say? Yes, he did. He knows what God has said and he trusts in his word. Or in David's words in Psalm 119.11, I have stored up or I have, tre- I have treasured or hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. The word of God was living and active in and through Jesus. And this becomes a model for us in responding to temptation. I've met and I've heard from a couple of you that in the past couple of months of renewed effort toward scripture memory, Your trust in God, your joy in Christ, your confidence and uh, desire to obey God in joy is just steadily and steadily increasing. And of course it would. Of course it would. When we're hiding God's words into our heart, when God's word becomes our thoughts, when God's word becomes our actions and our reactions, yes, it is written, yes. And so Jesus' response to temptation is quick and it is decisive. He does not give temptation the opportunity to like see the pros and cons of both sides, patiently arguing back and forth, but as it's been said, not playing with the idea until it becomes too attractive to resist. Or as Paul would say in Romans 13, 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Instead, quickly and decisively, Jesus responds to the devil, declaring his trust in the goodness and the timing of God. He trusts him as a son because he knows him as a father. But the devil doesn't give up there. Verse 5, and the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And said to him, "To you, I will give all this authority and their glory, and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours." Now there's obviously not a place in the world where all the kingdoms of the world can be literally seen, but this is perhaps a metaphorical mountaintop vision in which Jesus can not only see horizontally all the kingdoms of the world, all the kingdoms of Rome and of Greece and of Persia and India, but maybe even like three-dimensionally through, through time of the future kingdoms of the world that Jesus might reign and rule over. Now, one of my seminary professors once wrote this. Think of the implications of this offer. Have you ever thought about what if Jesus had taken this offer? If Jesus had accepted it, Satan would have surrendered his reign of terror. Jesus could have directed the kingdoms of the world however he wanted, even miraculously, even supernaturally. No more babies would be miscarried. No, no more women would die in childbirth. Ended immediately would be all human slavery, all genocide, all disease, all poverty, all torture, and all ecological catastrophes. The rows and rows of crosses across the highway of the Roman Empire would suddenly be gone. There would never be a Nero, or a Napoleon, or a Hitler, or a Stalin, or at least you would never hear the infamy of those names. There would be no world of divorce courts and abortion clinics and electric chairs and pornography. Whatever is troubling you right now would be gone centuries before you were ever conceived. This sounds like paradise. So the question for us then should be, why in the world would Jesus not take Satan up on this offer? Even more shockingly, why would Satan be willing to give over that kind of power? Because this kind of world of external peace is actually a paradise for Satan. A world while separation and hostility between God and man still exists is his greatest goal. Satan would stop at nothing and offer Jesus everything to prevent him from going to the cross. If he accepts this offer now, then... He is not going to the cross. Why? Because at the cross, Jesus would finally destroy the hostility between man and God and establish peace of his being the first fruits of our coming resurrection. And as the eldest brother, now the heir of now our future impossible adoption, he must have his will be perfectly aligned with the will of the Father. The timing and the plan of the triune God now executed perfectly at the cross, not taken up here on this mountaintop vision. And so likewise, later on, when Peter objects to Jesus' telling of his coming death on the cross, he's telling his disciples about how he must be crucified. And Peter says, no, 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 this can't be. How does Jesus respond to Peter? He says, get behind me, Satan. Like one of his best friends in the whole world, he calls Satan the accuser. Essentially, he's telling Peter, hey man, I've heard this offer before. You will not prevent my mission of peace and of God's adoption of his future sons and daughters. Without the cross, no one is saved. Now, undoubtedly, political and temporal power are meaningful and in many ways very important. There are intended or unintended consequences of good ideas or bad policies. Many of the things mentioned in that quote that I just read from a second ago, we should actually care very deeply about. We should be about Individually and as a church. We'll certainly talk more about this through the second half of Luke 4 and throughout the rest of Luke's gospel. But the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has come to accomplish and what this temptation is actually about, what Satan is actually trying to thwart and disrupt and prevent, the gospel, the good news, is about saving people from their biggest and most eternally deadly problem and enemy. It is about saving sinners from sin, from death from self-worship, and to unite them to the triune God. Not to just give them a temporally better and easier life. And so Jesus quickly and decisively again rejects the devil's bargain. A kingdom of potential physical peace, all in exchange for the worship of Satan. Now instead, Jesus continues to embrace a kingdom of actual spiritual peace In exchange for the worship of God and of God alone. Verse 8, and Jesus answered him, It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. I will not serve you, no matter what is on the other end of that bargain. He connects worshiping God with serving God. Love from the heart that leads to actual actions. He can't just say he loves God and worships him and then take the devil up on this deal actual actions in his life. I recently heard a counselor say that the way of Christian maturity is being both God-aware, aware aware of God, and being God-engaged, being God-aware and God-engaged. How often do we go through our days ignorant, oblivious to the existence of God, to the way in which he is moving and working, not even God-aware in our life, Not aware of the ways in which he is good. He is righteous. He is kind. He is patient. And again, even going through our days, forgetting that he exists at all. This is why reading his word, memorizing his word, praying his word, praying throughout the day, beholding his glory is actually important and vitally necessary to our lives to be increasingly aware of God. And yet it's one thing to be God aware Adam was God-aware. Israel was God-aware. I think most of us can think of times in which we have been God-aware, but then not God-engaged. Jesus offers the model for moving simply from being God-aware to God-engaged. I trust Him. I love Him. I will receive His kingdom of trusting that He is good and He is wise, rather than taking on my own, because I think that I know better. Because I actually like the idea better of being independent, being God-engaged, as Jesus is here saying, no, I will receive. I will wait patiently. I will worship and serve him alone. And so Jesus has once again parried off the temptation of Satan. He, he parries off his, his attempts to distract him from his obedient sonship, from a distraction of the possibility of independence, to distract him from the cross. And yet the devil is persistent. He comes again, wave after wave, verse nine. And then he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For as it is written, and catch this, the devil starts quoting scripture to Jesus. He says, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now if it's unclear, it it is unclear if this third temptation is another vision, or if the devil actually has the power and authority to like physically transport Jesus onto the top of the temple. But either way, if Jesus is looking over the southeast corner of the temple in Jerusalem, with the Kidron Valley far below him. Below would be a 450-foot drop all the way to the bottom of the valley. And so the devil tells Jesus to prove God's power by quoting Psalm 9. Or Psalm 91, where the psalmist is just one line after the other declaring in faith that God will sustain and deliver those who trust in the Lord. And the deception here of Satan is just sinister satan uses even god's perfect and life-giving word to tempt jesus into sin to tempt him into death if satan can even use the bible to tempt us then what will he not use jobs education marriage children family friendship material possessions yes and all of it, showing good gifts as attractive gods, but then hiding the reality that these gifts, apart from the God who gives, actually lead to death. Grabbing even God's good promises in his word, lifting them out of context, and then applying them to our lives to tempt us to worship ourselves, to tempt us to worship the gift over the giver. And so as Jesus overlooks the valley, one commentator says he could have, if he were like us, thought, Father, I do not think that you are taking care of me as a son. So just to be sure, I'm going to place you in a situation where you must take care of me now and on my terms. Have you ever thought this? Have you ever demanded this of God? God, if you are truly good, then you will give me this. You'll give me this passing grade you'll give me this job or that promotion you'll give me this date or that marriage you'll give me this pregnancy or that clean bill of health whatever it may be making demands of god because we actually do not consider him to be having our best interests in mind of our believing that we know better that we are wise enough to believe that our desires are actually what is best for us what is best for the world around us in other words that we are God, that we are a being of ultimate and omniscient wisdom for our own lives in the world, making demands of him. Yes, this has been me in my life over and over again, but not Jesus. Verse 12, Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 6, which in its fuller quote says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah." This is in Deuteronomy, now saying, You shall not put him to the test like your fathers did in Exodus 17, Massa, where God is providing for the people over and over and over again in their journey out of Egypt. But here they are at Massa, finding themselves thirsty again, saying, You know what? It would have been better had God not ever come and redeemed us out of slavery in the first place. We are so thirsty. Sure, we were slaves then, but at least we weren't thirsty. It leaves our, at least our bellies were full, then at least our appetites were met. It would have been better had God not come at all. So rather than the teacher testing his young and immature students, giving them an opportunity to grow in their obedience and in their faith, this moment at Masson Exodus 17 was like the young and immature students who have had a teacher who time and time again has consistently cared for them, has consistently provided for them, has consistently loved his students and taught them his wisdom, they put him in an opportunity to prove yet again that he is good, putting themselves in a place of omniscient wisdom and making him prove it rather than trusting him and receiving from him because he is wise and they are not. And so Jesus once again succeeds where Israel had not and did not. No, no, I will not put my God, my father, to the test. He is wise. I trust him. He has not forgotten like we do with our short memories what God had declared about him as he came out of the waters of baptism, that he is God's beloved son, and that is actually where the payoff in all of this is for us now there's so much to learn from Jesus as our model of godliness as our model of obedient trust in god as father that with god's word hidden on our heart in our heart that we can more easily respond quickly and decisively to temptation there's much to learn here as jesus as our model that by remembering who we are actually affects our present trust in God, to remember in the darkness what we absolutely knew and believed to be true in the light. That we do not need circumstances to be just finely and perfectly tuned, just right for our obedience. Remember, Adam's circumstances were good and he disobeyed and rejected God. Jesus' circumstances were terrible and he was filled with delight in God. And yet, here's the thing we are not the divine Son. Unlike Jesus, who had no sin nature, we are sometimes overwhelmed by our weak desires and by our frail worship. And so what then? Should we just wander back out into the wilderness and try harder next time? I failed this time, but maybe if God tests me again, I can prove it to him and earn his acceptance. Well, it's true, we should never grow weary in doing good. We are created for godliness and for good works. But this episode of Jesus in the wilderness is to remind us and to assure us that where the first Adam failed in disobedience, bringing us all into his same rejection of God, the second Adam has succeeded. And he is a great high priest. He is one who is able to sympathize With temptation and yet then usher us into his success. Did you catch what Kyle read in our assurance of pardon tonight? We have a great high priest who is able to sympathize with with temptation. So he understands our temptation. Think about it. He has been tempted like us, like Adam. He has even felt the full force of temptation more strongly than we have. Do you understand that? He has felt the full force of temptation even more strongly than we have. When we give into temptation—temptation towards independence, temptation towards self-worship—we actually don't feel temptation that strongly. Why? Because we give into it. Only when you go through temptation and come out on the other side in joyful obedience can you say that you've actually gone through the strongest form of temptation just as Jesus, our empathetic high priest, has. And yet, what is the end of that verse, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, that Kyle read earlier to us? Not, so try harder like Jesus has. No, it is, therefore, approach boldly the throne of grace. Why? Because he has done it for us. We are just writing in on his priestly coattails of what he has accomplished on our behalf. And so, we can either be heirs of the first Adam or heirs of the second Adam. The first Adam brought death to his descendants in a garden. The second Adam would ultimately bring resurrection life to his descendants out of a garden. The first Adam brought the curse of thorns into the world by his hands. The second Adam brought redemption from curse by wearing a crown of thorns on his head. The first Adam lost communion with his bride at a tree. The second Adam brought communion with his bride at a tree. The first Adam inhaled God's Spirit. The second Adam exhaled God's Spirit onto his people. Bless the Lord, for he gives me himself. That we might have his righteous life on, our, on his behalf, winning us to God as a great priest, as a great prophet, as a great king. That we might be born again into the life of Jesus. Out of the life of Adam and into the life of Christ. With Jesus' victorious obedience now as the fuel and the empowerment for our lives to Ephesians 4, to now living in this newly created second life of Adam, put off the old self. The old self, the life of Adam, of independence and self-worship. Put off that self, which belongs to the former manner of life, Paul says, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and instead to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. To put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness, in true holiness. To be able to obey, enjoy because of what He has accomplished for us, putting off the old, putting on the new. And so this week, we Christians can actually walk out of here in a renewed effort, in a renewed zeal to know God and to walk in obedience. One conclusion should never be Jesus has done all this for us, so now we don't have to do anything. Our effort doesn't matter. I'm good, I'm forgiven. That's true, but we can do all of this walking in obedience because he is walking with us, a great high priest, tempted, succeeding where we have failed, that he might give us his life. Empowered by the Spirit to walk in the new life because he has trusted God as Father where we have rejected God as Father. Because for those of us who are in Christ, because of Jesus, we are now God's beloved son and daughter in whom he is well pleased. Now living. In the joy of being a fully adopted a fully safe and secure fully beloved son or daughter let us remember these things let us not forget god's word let us not forget who we are settled secure sons and daughters of the most high god let's pray our father we are so thankful for your word we are so thankful lord jesus for your life for your obedience now given to us, for your death, your dying on the cross on our behalf, taking the good and right justice of God onto your head and instead of on ours, that you might be raised to new life so that we might be raised to new life with you, dead to Adam, now born in Christ. Remind us of these things this week remind us of this through your word, remind us of this by your spirit, remind us of this by your people, through your people. Help us to live into the full and settled identity that you have given us in Christ as your sons and daughters, and help us, we pray, might that reality fuel and empower our obedience, our joyful delight in your word, our joyful delight in doing what is pleasing to you for our own joy for the witness of Christ to the people around us and for the glory of Christ our King, we pray all these things. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.